I've always thought that the book is better than any adaptation, but that TV show might have an argument. Maps are always helpful. How in the world did I miss that? We could say that. We could stop the story here. We could pretend that this is the end and there is nothing else to talk about. I feel like there were many ways Kaya could have not ended up raising herself. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Such a Fun Read, a podcast where we come together to read a book and chat about it like a book club. I am your resident reader, Cherie Lampley, and I'm very excited to be here with you today. Hello, happy Wednesday. It has been longer than I wanted it to be since last talking to you all. Sorry about that. I dealt with a little sickness, but I am better now. Almost had a setback this past weekend as well, but I am better now. So this week's book is a book that is being adapted on the big screen, and I'm very happy to say that I finished a book before going to see it in theaters. Now, I haven't seen it yet, but I do plan to see it sometime this week. How close do you guys see an adaptation after reading the book? I'm curious about that. I remember reading Divergent and finishing it the night before going to see the movie, and I also remember kind of nitpicking the movie while watching it. There were at least a couple weeks in between me finishing The Summer I Turned Pretty and starting the TV show, which I've always thought that the book is better than any adaptation, but that TV show might have an argument. Anyway, this week's episode is discussing Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. It is an adult novel, a coming-of-age story with a bit of mystery. It was published in hardcover August 14th, 2018. It was also a Reese's book club pick, and after being published, it remained on bestseller list for a while. I remember watching a segment on CBS Sunday Morning on the author and the book. I'll make sure to leave a link to that in the show notes if you guys want to take a look at that. But there's also a bit of controversy too. Delia Owens, the author, is still wanted for questioning for her time spent in Africa by Zambian authorities. I will make sure to leave a link to an NPR article in the show notes as well. The author claims she had nothing to do with it. I'm curious if with the release of this movie, the story being made more public than all, and whether the Owens had anything to do with it or not, hopefully something gets found out about this. So why did I pick this book? I bought this book back in 2019 and figured it was time to dust it off my shelf and actually read it, especially with the movie coming out. And with this book being a phenomenon for a few years, having sold millions of copies and all, it was time to find out what all the hype was about. I did enjoy reading this book, and I'm really glad I finally picked it up. I definitely want to know your thoughts on this book as well. Let me know on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. The handle is Such a Fun Read. You can also email me at hello at suchafunread.com. But right now, let's just get into it, and we'll start with the book summary. For years, rumors of the Marsh Girl have haunted Barclay Cove, a quiet town on the North Carolina coast. 
So in late 1969, when handsome Chase Andrews is found dead, the locals immediately suspect Kaya Clark, the so-called Marsh Girl. But Kaya is not what they say. Sensitive and intelligent, she has survived for years alone in the marsh that she calls home, finding friends in the goals and lessons in the sand. Then the time comes when she yearns to be touched and loved. When two young men from town become intrigued by her wild beauty, Kaya opens herself to a new life until the unthinkable happens. Perfect for fans of Barbara Kingsolver and Karen Russell, Where the Crawdads Sing is at once an exquisite ode to the natural world and heartbreaking coming-of-age story and a surprising tale of possible murder. Owens reminds us that we are forever shaped by the children we once were and that we are all subject to the beautiful and violent secrets that nature keeps. That is a summary on the book jacket of my copy of the book. And now let's talk about it. And there will be spoilers. So let's start with a list of characters. That's usually where I start anyway. I'm not going to name all of them here, just a few. You might hear me add a few more characters down the line. We have our main character, Catherine Danielle Clark. She goes by Kaya. I'm going to call her Kaya for the rest of this episode. Jody, brother closest to Kaya's age, goes by Jody, but his real name is Jeremy. Her other siblings were Mary, Napier, and Amanda. Her parents were Maria and Jake, Ma and Pa. Jumpin', Marina gas station owner and surrogate father to Kaya. Mabel, Jumpin's wife. Tate, he was a friend of Jody's, also becomes more than a friend to Kaya. Ed Jackson, the sheriff. Joe Perdue, deputy. Tom Milton, Kaya's attorney. And Chase Andrews, the deceased. So those are the characters I want to list right now. I did want to say something, though, that I am laughing at myself a bit over. I just opened the book to look at some notes I took, and I noticed there's a map in the front of the book. I did not see that before. I love when books have maps. How did I miss that? You see Kaya's Shack, Point Beach, Jumpin's Bait and Gas, and other places. Maps are always helpful. How in the world did I miss that? Anyway, the story goes back and forth between different time periods, 1969, which is the present day when Chase's body was found, and starts in 1952, when Kaya's mother leaves. Kaya was six at the time. Her mother was not the last person to leave her either. After a while, after all her siblings left, Kaya was left with just her father. I was sad when Jody left her. He was young too, but I wanted him to take her with him. Kaya's father, Jake, was, well, he got on my nerves, especially when you read his backstory. He came from a family that fell on hard times during the Depression, stole from them, and ran off to New Orleans where he ended up meeting Kaya's mother. Her mother's family was a descendant of a French merchant and owners of a shoe factory. Jake expected to just be handed everything, but Maria's father, Kaya's grandfather, wanted him to work for it. That didn't go over well. And it didn't help that he was a drunk. Then he went off to war against Germany and that made things worse. He ended up moving his family to a cabin his father built on the coast of North Carolina. 
He beat his wife and children, and when everyone was gone, Kaya had to take care of them both. Reminder, she's six. Kaya only went to school for one day, mostly because she was hungry. But after being at that school and having other kids make fun of her, she didn't want to go back. It didn't help that she couldn't read either. That came later with Tate. He teaches her how to read. We'll get to that later. There was a decent time with Kaya and her father. He wasn't drinking. They were going fishing together and having some family time. She was still adulting by doing the chores and everything, but at least she had a bit of family. Then a letter from her mother arrived and her father went back to drinking and rarely being home. And in 1956, her father was gone. Kaya was all alone. She was 10. The good news was she was a survivor. She used the family boat to get around, went to jump in to get gas. Of course, she needed money to do so. She would sell mussels and smoke fish. So Jumpin and his wife Mabel became surrogate parents to Kaya. They collected clothes for her from their church as well as other things Kaya might need. Their friendship continued throughout the years and I enjoyed them. One day, she went to visit Jumpin and Mabel at their home. She wanted to give them blackberry jam she made to return their kindness. It was a bit runny, but it's the thought that counts, right? But on the way, she saw a couple white boys calling Jumpin the N-word. Jumpin' just walked faster and tried not to pay attention. You know, it was a time he couldn't do anything about it. Kaya, on the other hand, decides to do something about it. She hits one of them in the head with a bag she has and the other runs away. She never ends up visiting Jumpin' and Mabel that day. So I'm not sure how I feel about the N-word being used in this book. I understand the time period and all the scene was set in 1960. But seeing the word actually written in the text from a white author is a bit weird. Let's go back to Tate teaching her to read. That started in 1960. She even learns the names of her family members. She thought her siblings' names were Missy, Mandy, Murph, and Jody. But they were actually Mary, Napier, Amanda, and Jeremy. She still calls Jeremy Jody, though. And getting Mandy from Amanda doesn't seem like a stretch. I spent a lot of time wondering if any of her siblings were going to return, especially Jody. We'll get to that later. While learning to read, Kaya spends a lot of time with Tate. They were friends, but also got closer. He brought her discarded textbooks from school for her to read. He also gave her a first kiss. I'm pretty sure that was her first kiss. He didn't want to go too far because he thought she was too young, which agreed. He was four years older than her, and after some years, that may not matter, but she was only 15. Yeah, she wasn't the average 15-year-old, but it is what it is. But I am still mad, not happy with Tate for not coming back on the 4th of July. So he goes away to college in Chapel Hill, and he was supposed to return to visit her on the 4th of July. He promised, and with everything Kaya has been through, don't promise her things like that if you aren't going to show. Kaya was devastated. I was devastated. From somewhere very deep, she made herself a promise never to trust or love anyone again. And then four years later, Chase Andrews happens. Chase does what he can to get close to Kaya. We all know why. He wants to have sex with her. He wants to have sex with the Marsh girl. He tries to early on, but she stops it. And yet, he still comes around. 
He still spends time with her. He brings up marrying her, does everything he can to get in her pants. He ends up taking her out of town just to do so. She ends up seeing Tate again as well. The first time seeing him since he told her he'd be back on the 4th, five years prior. She, of course, is not happy to see Tate. She's upset with him. I'm upset with him. But he tells her things about Chase she didn't want to hear, like how he was messing around with other girls in town. I was so surprised. Just kidding. Not surprised at all. One thing Kaya doesn't know is that Tate did come back. He just couldn't face her. He didn't think that she would fit into his world. Look, when you're young, it is possible that you do and think stupid things sometimes that can stop your happiness. This is a thing that Tate did. Back to Kaya and Chase. Kaya later sees Chase in town with another guy and two girls. One of the girls he had his arm around. He tries to brush that off like he was just hanging out with friends, but Kaya ends up reading the newspaper later and sees an engagement announcement with Chase and another girl. Just another rejection for her. But at least she would get away from Chase, a man that was just using her. Another thing about Kaya I haven't mentioned is that she has started a collection of the Marsh. Kind of started as a hobby and then pretty much became her career. She had a lot of stuff at her home and when Tate saw it, he wanted to help her publish a book with all the stuff she had. He was still trying to help her. Well, trying to help her help herself. So Kaya becomes an author. She has enough money to pay off the taxes for her home and has a full deed in her name. The girl who has pretty much had to take care of herself since she was six years old accomplished a lot. So to recap, we'll go by the years quickly. 1952, Kaya's mother leaves. Her siblings leave later on. Kaya is left to fend for herself and her father. 1953, things were okay with Kaya and her father until a letter from her mother showed up. 1956, Kaya's father left. She had to fend for herself now and Jumpin' and his wife Mabel started to help her out as well. 1960, Tate begins to teach Kaya to read and the two get close. 1961. Tate does not return for the 4th of July like he promised. 1965. Kaya and Chase Andrews start to develop a connection. 1966. Kaya and Chase finally do it. Tate also returns to town and helps her get published. 1967. Kaya learns of Chase's engagement. In 1968, Kaya is a published author and landowner, and Jody returns. I almost forgot to talk about Jody's return. As I said, I have been waiting and waiting for him to return, for someone related to Kaya to show up. I was happy it was Jody. They ended up spending good time together. Jody had seen her book. He was in the army. They paid for his college degree, mechanical engineering. Good for you, Jody. He apologized to her for leaving without her. I like what she said. We were the victims, not the guilty. I do wish he had taken her with him, but he was a kid too. Jody also told her that their mother died in 1966. She was ill mentally and physically. That letter their mother had sent that made their father angry was a letter where she wanted to come back to get her children. And he said that if she returned the kids would be beaten unrecognizable. So that was the end of that, I guess. Why didn't her parents come out instead? 
I feel like there were many ways Kaya could have not ended up raising herself. But I was happy that she got to spend time with Jody. Everything was in a good place. She was friendly with Tate, but also guarded because of what happened before. And Chase was away with his wife, so no worries there. Things seemed good. And yet, we are now in 1969. The year that Chase Andrews' body was found at the bottom of the fire tower. There were no footprints or fingerprints, and once someone pointed things in Kaya's direction, the sheriff didn't think to look at anyone else. So the evidence from the sheriff. Time of death between midnight and 2 a.m., October 29th to 30th, 1969. Red wool fibers were found on Chase's jacket. A red wool hat was found in Kaya's place that matched the fibers. Chase had on a shell necklace when people saw him last, but he wasn't wearing it when his body was found. Chase's mother said he was seeing the Marsh girl. She didn't know her name, but broke things off when he married Pearl. Hal Miller, a shrimp crew member, saw Kaya motoring out of the bay around 1.45 a.m. that night. Rodney Horn, a retired mechanic, saw Kaya stumbling toward her boat one night, trying to pull her shorts up. She was shouting at Chase and she threatened him if he bothered her again. The bus drivers may have seen someone with Kaya's description disguised on their buses that night. And here is the evidence that helps Kaya. Tate and Jumpin both said she was out of town that night meeting with her publisher. Miss Pansy Price, a fellow townswoman and clerk, says she saw Kaya get on the 2.30 p.m. bus on October 28th and return at 1.16 p.m. on the 30th. Her editor, Robert Foster, was with Kaya at dinner and dropped Kaya off around 10 p.m. to her hotel room and picked her up at 7.30 a.m. for breakfast that next morning. The motel clerk didn't see Kaya leave her room that evening. So Kaya ends up getting arrested. They at first couldn't find her, then decided to lay a trap for her at Jumpin's, knowing she would go there for gas. Jump and try to stop her from coming in, but they got to her anyway. As I was reading through the court hearing, I thought two things. One, Kaya got herself a good lawyer. Tom Milton came out of retirement to represent her, and he did a good job. He definitely put a lot of doubt in the prosecution's case. Two, that sheriff needs to not get reelected. So much circumstantial evidence. I know what we find out later, but he really didn't have a case. And Kaya was found not guilty for first degree murder. One of the things I have forgotten about while reading was that Chase took Kaya earlier on to the fire tower. That is where she gave him the shell necklace. You know, the one that he wasn't wearing anymore. Also, throughout the story, Kaya was always reciting poetry. Some of them were from a woman named Amanda Hamilton. Another thing to remember is that Kaya spent time studying a lot about insects and how the females would lure the males before devouring them, like the fireflies. Oh, and the red hat? That came from Tate. So after the trial, Kaya and Tate lived the rest of their lives together in the marsh and lived happily ever after. We could say that. We could stop this story here. We could pretend that this is the end and there is nothing else to talk about. But I guess we have to talk about the entire book. Well, it seems that Tate found something out after Kaya died. 
She lived to the age of 64. The whole town actually come to her funeral. She continued her life writing books and remaining in the marsh. She never returned to the town. The villagers saw her only as a distant shape gliding through fog. And over the years, the mysteries of her story became legend, told over and over with buttermilk pancakes and hot pork sausages at the diner. Kaya also ended up receiving an honorary doctorate degree from the University of North Carolina. After her funeral, Tate went back to the shack and he ended up finding a cutout in the floorboard. He found manila envelopes in a small box. In the envelopes were pages of poetry by Amanda Hamilton. He learned that this was a pen name for Kaya. She was the one writing the poetry. Then he found a poem called The Firefly. One might say this is her confession for the murder of Chase Andrews. I'm not going to be the one to say it, though. But one might say that. Tate also found the shell necklace, the one Chase should have been wearing when his body was found. There could be a perfectly good explanation for all of this. There really could be. Maybe Chase had stopped by and returned the necklace before he died. She didn't stay at her home after he had tried to rape her. She didn't want him to find her. Then maybe she found it and hid it because she didn't want anyone to think she had anything to do with it. For a while there, I thought that Tate might have done it, especially since that was his hat. He might have been the one that killed Chase. But his reaction to reading the poem and seeing the necklace was a bit too shocked. Maybe he was shocked because she knew what he had done and loved him anyway. Or maybe it is the simplest assumption. Kaya really did kill Chase. She didn't want to be like her mother in fear of anyone, and she knew Chase would come after her again. So Tate ends up burning the poems and the shell on the necklace. No one in town ever found out about what happened to Chase after Kaya's trial. I'd say my favorite character was definitely Kaya. I felt for her so much throughout the story. Also loved Jumpin' and Mabel for helping her out, even though they didn't have to. My least favorite characters would have to be Kaya's dad and Chase. I knew what Chase was after the moment he spoke to her. And I already talked about her dad. I don't want to again. Well, that'll do it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Such a Fun Read. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode on Where the Crawdads Sing. I'd love to know your thoughts. You can find me on our website, suchafunread.com, or on Twitter and Instagram at suchafunread. You can also send me an email to hello at suchafunread.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next week. Thank you.